Welcome to the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal podcast, where we interview authors of the most impactful digital health research papers and leaders and entrepreneurs who are implementing these findings in the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gambari, and I am the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal and the host of this podcast. If you like this episode and would like to support our effort, please visit our website at Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite platform for listening to podcasts. My guest today is Dr. Rod Passman. Hi, Rod. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's, I've been uh, waiting a long time to have this conversation with you, not only about the paper that we're going to talk about, but, um, but your work in general and, and an arc of your career. And thanks so much for taking the time to, to spend the afternoon with me and, and, our, and, and our audience. Um, Rod, can you um, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, kind of where you are and, um, and your research interests and how you thought about the project that we're going to be discussing? Sure. So um, I am a clinical EP uh, at Northwestern, uh, and I am the director of the Center for Arrhythmia Research at Northwestern. Uh, and I've been at Northwestern. It's my first and only job at a fellowship. So I've been there for 23 years. Uh, and uh, as we'll talk about, my interest in my research uh, really dovetail with my, my clinical work. But when I was a, a fellow, um, I did a master's degree in epidemiology and biostatistics. So I take a lot of that knowledge and uh, interest and sort of apply it to the research that we do. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm a practicing uh, electrophysiologist. Uh, I do procedures two days a week. I see patients one day a week. Uh, and then the rest of my time is spent doing research. I certainly understand um kind of staying in one place for a long time. I've been at Michigan since my training as well. Um, I have also heard that um, you're maybe the only electrophysiologist that I know that has a street food named after. Is that true? <laughs> well, <laughs> I will say this. Um, I, 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 I would like to think that... Um, uh, some of my claims to fame, I would like to believe they're in medicine, but I have to be honest that most of them appear to have very little to do with medicine. So uh, the story you're alluding to is um, I took care of a family member uh, of a gentleman who owned a pretty well-known uh, hot dog stand in Chicago. And to thank me for that, uh, he created the Dr. Rod Passman Celebrity Sausage. So I must confess that the place is no longer in existence. But for a while, I did have this um, sausage named after me. It was a, uh, a kielbasa sausage with um, uh, cheddar cheese and Guinness stout mustard. And to be honest, it was delicious. That sounds amazing. I will also uh, tell you, though. Yeah, it's amazing. But, I, but, but I'll also tell you that my other claim to fame, a story you may not know, is that I was a consultant on the James Bond movie, Casino Royale. Uh, in that movie, you know, James Bond is uh, poisoned with digitalis and gets cardioverted. And uh, the producers of the movie called us uh, and wanted to sort of know what that would look like. And we created some 
uh, background uh, telemetry monitors going by, uh, which would uh, show his uh, heart rhythm. So I would say the hot dog stand, the James Bond, after that, my career's been downhill. Well, there's not that many people that can tell that story. So, you know, your bio reads something like the kielbasa, James Bond. <laughs> and then and then what we were going to talk about, which is your research uh, focus. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about this really interesting paper that you published in, in JAMA Cardiology um, titled The Temporal Association Between Episodes of Atrial Fibrillation and Risk of Ischemic Stroke. And that's a topic that like, we are very interested in, kind of understanding the relationship but the timing of, of having episodes of atrial fibrillation and stroke. Because as, as I would like to maybe talk about later, it has significant implications on how we may um, continue to manage atrial fibrillation going forward. Um, so could you give us a little background about why this this topic and why it's important and how you got interested in it? And and then we can dive into yeah. the methodology. And... So, you know, I think that uh, for those of us who sort of spend our lives taking care of, of people with atrial fibrillation, you know, one of the most difficult conversations we have with patients is, you know, that patient who by their vascular risk score should be on anticoagulation for the rest of their lives, yet that patient will tell you that they have one episode of AFib a year, or you put them on a medication or done an ablation and the atrial fibrillation is gone. And trying to explain to that individual why our guidelines say that you still need to be on anticoagulation for the rest of your life is something that I've always questioned. And I think that there are two camps, right? There are those that believe that the rhythm itself causes thrombus formation and stroke. And some that believe that the atrial fibrillation is sort of a, an epiphenomenon, right? That is basically a marker for a diseased atrium. And that marker has nothing to do with the stroke risk. Uh, and that even if you eliminate or reduce the AF burden, that that stroke risk is still there. And I think that studies like, you know, trends, which showed a temporal dissociation between the episodes of AFib and the stroke, sort of support that uh, epiphenomenon, sort of you know, risk marker argument, right? Because w what else could explain it if the AFib happened in November and the stroke happened in February? And what bothered me about those studies is that if you look at those patients, um, first of all, you know, many of those patients had pretty high Chad's VAS scores. I think the average Chad's VAS score of those patients who had strokes was like five and a half. So, you know, why are we scratching our heads as electrophysiologists when someone with diabetes, hypertension, and congestive heart failure who's 82 has a stroke that's, you know, has a stroke that's temporally dissociated uh, from their, their atrial fibrillation. So uh, I also think that we also do ourselves a disservice when we lump stroke mechanisms together. So, you know, us saying the person had a stroke is like the neurologist saying that the person had an arrhythmia. Well, there are many types of arrhythmias and there are very many types of strokes. So why should we be surprised, you know, if a lacunar infarct happened at a point in time far apart from the episode of AFib? So I think it was not possible to tease out the confounding issue of other competing risks of stroke by sort of the observational design of prior studies, you know, including trends. And that's what motivated this study. 
There's a lot to unpack there, and, and um, it's a difficult problem to study um, with the data sets that we have available. And you picked a very interesting database. Um, can you um, kind of go through the structure of the database that you use to um, kind of um, get at the questions that you that you were interested in? Yeah. So I think you know that. Um... You're absolutely right. It's 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 a difficult question to answer, and I think the only way to sort of you know leverage this is to uh, have a large cohort of patients you know with continuous monitoring, uh, and that you need the clinical histories on those individuals. So, um, and we were quite inspired by Mintu Taraki's paper. You know, he had done this in the VA population um, in a smaller cohort of patients all of whom had dual chamber ICDs with remote monitoring. So because, you know, he was able to get into the VA records, you know, he could look at all these individuals with dual chamber ICDs treated by the VA and showed, just as we did, that following a several hour episode of atrial fibrillation, you know, he showed that the risk of stroke was, you know, several times higher in the first few weeks compared to another period of time. So I must tell you that, you know, we're not original. Uh, we went to that same database. So, but we went to a much larger database. So we said to ourselves, well, we need a large cohort of patients with implantable devices. This has to go beyond any single or group of institutions. And we need to know not only the clinical history of those patients, but we need to know what happened to them. So we had a long history of working with Medtronic um, we were very excited when they um, uh, purchased access to this Optum database. So, uh, you know, Medtronic has the continuous data on several hundred thousand patients with implantable devices. Optum has clinical data on about 11 million patients who are enrolled in five U.S. HMOs. So by combining the clinical information from Optum with the device data from Medtronic, you know, we could get device data on tens of thousands of patients, you know, uh, uh, know their history, know their outcome, and know their AF patterns. Fantastic database to kind of get at the question that you're interested in. Um, I have to admit that when I was reading the paper, I spent a significant amount of my time trying to understand the the methodology, uh, and you use this very interesting study design um, called the case crossover study design. Can you um, explain, uh, first of all, what it is? Um, how did you arrive at some of the assumptions that you did, and why why use that over um, right. other study designs? So that's a that's the key here. What we did is we said, okay, what is the risk of stroke? you know, in the weeks following a several hour episode of atrial fibrillation in an individual compared to that same individual in a period of time, several months before when they didn't have atrial fibrillation. So basically we're using each patient as their own control. And this case crossover, or I'm sorry, case control um, uh, uh, methodology is ideal to sort of isolate the disease process from the confounders. So as we alluded to in studies like ASSERT, you know, when you have competing risks of stroke from diabetes and hypertension and all these other things, how do you isolate the role of atrial fibrillation? 
well, by doing this, you know, sort of uh, 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 crossover design, uh, we basically say, what's your risk of stroke following a long episode? And we're essentially controlling for these other risk factors, right? Presumably, you had hypertension three months before. You weren't that much younger three months before. You had congestive heart failure three months before. So this study design allows us to isolate the role of atrial fibrillation and stroke and get rid of, or at least to attempt to control for those confounding issues. And that's why we chose this design. And I think it's very powerful when you're dealing with a multifactorial disease like atrial fibrillation, and you're dealing with patients uh, who have multiple avenues for stroke. Um, that's super interesting. So you try to get at the association between AF defined as like a time-varying exposure with an outcome, which is a stroke exactly. that you uh, gleaned from from the uh, the database that you had put together. Um, exactly. That, that, that's so. Um, so the case. So can you, can we talk a little bit about the case period and the control period? Um, so for so to, from what I understand from reading the paper, you have the event of interest, which is stroke, and then you have a case period, which you define in your paper as something between one to thirty days, and then a control period, is, which is ninety-one to one hundred twenty days, with some time in between. Can you tell us a little bit about the timing and why you chose those um, epochs? Yeah. So so we thought that. Um, uh, Choosing that sort of minus 90 you know, to 120 day was close enough to the AFib episode that your risk factors were similar. You know, if we said, okay, what about a year before, two years before? Well, you know, people develop heart failure in that period of time or people are significantly older. We thought that that sort of control period of, of around three months before meant that those other risk factors would not change significantly over such a brief time. And we could still isolate the effects of atrial fibrillation. We did do a sensitivity analysis where we varied that control period, by the way, and the results are still the same. So I'm sure there's a period where you get out so far that the individual has changed. You know, there may they there they may have developed a new disease process. But we thought this was a fair balance between separating out uh, the when the AFib occurred versus when it didn't, and yet having that individual still be essentially that same person in terms of other risk factors. And then there is this other important factor before we dive into the results of the study, which you define in your methods, which is um, a concordant versus a discordant exposure. Can you explain what, what that means when we're reading the study? Right. So, so there are some people who were in, in fact, you know, the vast majority of people were in normal rhythm during the case period, right, and during the control period, there were some people who were in atrial fibrillation all the time as well. What we were really interested in is, is basically what was the risk of, uh, uh, for those patients who, who had strokes, you know, how many of them had atrial fibrillation, you know, in the 30 days prior, right, versus that control period. So the only informative patients were those that differed, right? I mean, were those that had AFib during one period and sinus rhythm during another. If you're in AFib all the time or sinus all the time, you don't really contribute to the value here. So the value is in discordance, not concordance. 
yeah, super important concept to understand before we go into the um, the results of it. Now that we kind of, I think we did the hard part, can you tell us a little bit about what you found when you analyze the data? Yeah. So what's interesting is that, um, you know, we found that following a five and a half hour episode of atrial fibrillation, that your relative risk of stroke goes up, you know, uh, maybe four or five fold. And then after a week or so goes back down to your baseline. And this is pretty much the same thing that, uh, that Mitu Tarakia found in his VA database, but he found about a five fold increase that lasted for maybe two weeks or so. Granted, he was an exclusive ICD population. We had ICD pacemakers and loop recorders. The other, I think, really convincing piece of data is that for those patients who were not on anticoagulation, that risk was magnified. For patients who were on anticoagulation, that risk essentially disappeared, suggesting that these are strokes that are amenable to anticoagulation, which are cardioembolic strokes. So I think while we couldn't adjudicate stroke mechanism using our study design, to me, the sensitivity to anticoagulation is yet another convincing piece to the story that these are afib-related strokes that may be amenable to anticoagulation. Really important um, finding here, Rod, and congratulations for, for, for the study. Now, this begs the question of what this, why is this important? Um, we, all, we all know that we're going to be, have availability now with wearables to kind of you know, monitor age fib all the time, 24 hours a day potentially um, for the duration of someone's life if we wanted to. Like what? What? What are the? What? Why is this finding so important? And if you if you could take us through how this could potentially impact clinical care going forward. Well, so what I didn't tell you is that you know one of the concepts that we've been working on for a few years now is this concept of pill and pocket anticoagulation. Right, getting back to that patient who has very infrequent episodes of AFib or whom you've ablated, and yet because of their Chad's vascular you would recommend lifelong anticoagulation. And the question we had was, can you target anticoagulation? Right? Can you find that episode with a, an implantable or wearable and basically treat that patient with a rapid onset DOAC and only give it during that sort of high-risk stroke period and therefore derive the benefits from anticoagulation right? only during that high-risk window and then keep that patient off anticoagulation during long periods of sinus rhythm when the risk of stroke may be low. So the motivation for this study, and on top of all the other studies that we've done proving that this approach is feasible, was to sort of make that argument that indeed there's a temporal association between AFib and cardioembolic stroke, and that this strategy of pillar pocket anticoagulation is actually quite viable right, uh, based on, uh, on this study. And that while we don't expect to cure all strokes uh, with this strategy, we do believe that we can um, uh, equally prevent cardioembolic strokes while minimizing the risk and cost of continuous lifelong DOACs. Very provocative and innovative way of thinking about management of atrial fibrillation going forward. How would you um, design a study 
testing that hypothesis, right? Well, you know, I have to tell you that the inspiration, and, and I, I hope that, you know, the trainees listening um, take the story to heart. Um, you know, all of us who practice clinical medicine, I think every day encounter situations where we wonder whether what we're doing is the right thing and what the information upon which we based our decision, you know, how, how good is it? And the inspiration for the story came from a patient, or at least this line of research came from a patient of mine who I continued on anticoagulation, you know, despite the fact that he had the maintenance of sinus rhythm based on all the monitoring that I had done on him, but I had continued it because of his Chad's VAS score. And then he came in with an intracranial bleed that was, you know, a life-changing event for he, him and his entire family. And then, you know, as you dig deeper into, you know, why we practice medicine this way, fundamentally, it was because, A, we had no way of monitoring for asymptomatic AFib, uh, and B, we had no way of rapidly anticoagulating someone with an oral agent in the Coumadin era. And C, you know, we didn't really have much insights into the temporal association between AF and stroke, or insights into the association between AF duration and stroke. So, you know, my research, I hope, tells a story, right? Trying to peel away at some of these hurdles to understand, is this approach feasible? Well, certainly the invention of implantable devices like implantable cardiac monitors, and as you alluded to, wearable devices, you know, and the invention of, uh, of DOACs, which provide rapid oral anticoagulation, made this approach feasible, right? The question is scientifically, is it safe? So the study that we've designed that we've um, uh, sent to NIH is called REACT-AF. And this is a large-scale randomized trial that will compare, we hope, uh, the current standard of care of chronic DOAC use to pill-in-pocket DOAC using a customized smartwatch. The primary endpoint will be non-inferiority for stroke. We don't expect to do better, but we hope that we can still protect patients against stroke. But we do expect that we'll see a significant reduction in bleed risk because of the reduction in anticoagulation use. We did two pilot studies, uh, one with implantable monitors that showed a 94% reduction in the time on anticoagulation with no strokes. And the other is a study that Peter Zimmerbaum from BI Boston led, uh, where uh, called Tactic AF, where it showed a 75% reduction in the use of anticoagulation, again, using sort of pill-in-pocket strategy in these cases with implantable devices. But of course, most patients don't need implantable devices, and perhaps a wearable can take their place. Really interesting and something that definitely that I will be following, and I think our audience will be following uh, as you embark on executing this project and answering this super important clinical question. So, Rod, I, there's a segment um, that I that that um, that we call uh, Rod Passman Productive Function. Um, so, you know, you you certainly are super busy. Um, you're a clinician. Um, you are a researcher. You're a James Bond uh, consultant, and you know you have food street food named after you. Um, so, you know we're. How do you do it? Uh, what does your day look like? How do you structure your day? How do you do all the things that you do? Um, if you, you know, that's um, a question that we're all interested in. Yeah, I'm still figuring it out. I, I would say um, I don't 
uh, when I'm working, uh, I'm pretty efficient. I don't take long walks for coffee. I don't let people come into my office to talk to me. I try to really maximize all my time. So if I have, you know, 10 minutes, I will take those 10 minutes to answer an email or to, you know, respond to a patient issue. Um, I really want to make sure that my time is accounted for. Um, I also would say early in your career, you know, you say yes to everything that comes your way, every review of a paper, every review article. Uh, and I think as you go on in your career, you should try to be selective uh, to those things that most interest you and that you could contribute to most significantly. Um, I try to make sure that, you know, when I'm not uh, uh, at work, that I put those things behind me. I think for those of us who have families and outside interests, it's really important to try to maintain those. But to do that, I think you need to be very efficient at work. Uh, and that when you're, and, and, and as I say, when you're working, um, uh, you know, ma- make sure that you're being productive. I think if you're early in your career, you need to find a good mentor uh, that helps you balance these demands and also make sure that you're staying on on track. And I think, you know, that, um, you know, doing, as I said, t- sort of telling the story in your research that one study should lead to the next, you know, which should lead to the next. You should be gathering that data that makes an argument about your viewpoint so that you're, you're known as the person, you know, who really has a niche in that particular area. It's very, very hard to be in an expert and to contribute to the literature in everything in EP. Uh, so you have to ask yourself, are you going to be sort of a phenomenology person that does things in the lab and reports on it? Are you going to be doing sort of more population-based studies, maybe like, like I do? Uh, are you going to be a basic science person? Uh, and it works out very well, I think, if your clinical interests and your research interests dovetail. So my interest clinically is in atrial fibrillation. My research interest is in AFib. So every patient I see in clinic, every procedure that I do uh, helps me contribute to my research in one way or the other. They're not pulling me in different directions. They're sort of um, uh, helping me along the way uh, towards my goal. Does that answer the question? No, no, that's perfect. Do you have a special time when you do writing or deep work or, or this kind of like you find time between cases, procedures on the weekends? How do you manage the writing, yeah. you know, which requires you to concentrate? Right. Um, I try to do it. I'm not great when I'm tired. I'm not great when I feel I should be doing something more. So I try to do it really between cases and things like that, but I'm always thinking about it. So even, you know, uh, when I'm not doing the writing, I'm thinking about, okay, what's the perfect word here? What, what, what is a reviewer, what I see as a problem? So I'm always mulling it over in my mind. And I think the most important thing when I'm writing is get a draft on paper, right? I think so many of us have difficulty sitting down and doing it. And I think just spilling words out on a page and then continuing to play with those words until they start to take form is, is much easier uh, when you've just sort of spilled the, the words out in the first place. So don't feel like you need to sit down with the final product. Um, when I work with my trainees on writing a paper, I mean, they make fun, but we could go through 20 iterations, right? And we may argue at the end about, you know, one or two words, but as I said, this is an, an iterative process. Uh, it, we don't expect to see the final product. And I like to sit down during working hours uh, and do those things. Other people I know are very different. I'm just not um, as thoughtful and creative, I think, uh, at the end of the day when I'm often you know, tired and, and sometimes frustrated. Oh, thank you for that. that. That was fantastic. Well, 
Um, Rod, thank you so much um, for taking the time discussing the paper um, and your production function with us. Um, we certainly are excited to see the results of React AF and all the other work you're doing in this area. Thanks again um, from Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal and look forward to talking to you again soon. And thank you very much for having me.